you're listening to Unraveling Rachel. This podcast is all about this journey that we call life and how we can live it more authentically so that it sucks less and feels better. Sounds good, huh? Hello there, my friends. Today, I am recording another one of those fun off-the-cuff podcasts because just suddenly October 1st snuck up on me. I was going to uh, wait and, and record on some things that I wanted to talk about, but I realized there's quite a list of things I want to talk about. And one of them happens to be that today is a rare cancer day. This was established this year. This is the first year that they're doing it, established by the National Organization for Rare Disorders. And the intent of Rare Cancer Day is to raise awareness for rare cancers and the challenges that patients who are diagnosed with rare cancers face, the challenges that doctors face in diagnosing rare cancers because of lack of awareness, and then the challenge of finding care, of feeling like there's support out there for patients, and the challenge of uh, finding experts and for experts to have access to funding and research and tools to advance the care that they can provide for their patients is out there. So that's the first thing that I want to talk about, uh, and I'm just going to dive right into that there, and then I'll go ahead and list a few other things that I want to talk about uh, for the month of October. Um, so back to the Rare Cancer Day. Obviously, if you've been listening to this podcast or following me on Instagram, then you know that in June, I was diagnosed with appendix cancer, also called pseudomyxoma peritoneae, which means false mucinous tumor of the peritoneum. And um, PMP, which is what it shortened to, and appendix cancer, even I get a little bit confused on this. They are uh, like the same but different. It's like khakis are pants, but not all pants are khakis, I guess. Um, so PMP is the the tumor and it can originate from other organs. Often though, it originates from the appendix. Now, how that happens is that there is a mucosal lining in the appendix and in fact in the small and large bowel as well and in many of our other organs, you know, like even like our nose. That's why when we get a cold, we get all that mucus. So there's that mucus layer and a polyp forms in there and eventually the cells multiply out of control. It pops through that lining and then the cancer cells can spread through the peritoneal cavity. In the case of appendix cancer, this is how the ca cancer spreads. It's not like other cancers that spread through, <clears throat> excuse me, it's not like other cancers that spread through the blood and the lymph system. So that's kind of a good thing, I guess. Uh, it means that uh, I didn't have to have uh, like systemic chemo, I guess you would call it. Like I didn't have to go in and have the IV chemo that went through my whole body and caused me to get sick and lose my hair. Um, I, I did lose my hair, but that was because of trauma from the surgery. So back to uh, appendix cancer, that's 
that's what happens. The, the tumor pops through, it spreads, it gets on other organs. These tumor cells are in the, the mucin and often it doesn't really cause symptoms that doctors are um, trained to look at and say, oh, that symptom's appendix cancer. It causes really mild symptoms in the beginning that look like a lot of other things. Um, So the common ones are digestive issues, changes in bowel habits, um, maybe food sensitivities, um, bloating. It can cause uh, abdominal pain and discomfort, pelvic pain and discomfort, pain with sex, and I'm probably forgetting some others. Those are like the ones I experienced in the, the early times. And then later, once the, the, the tumor has spread a lot and there's a lot of mucin being produced, that's when things really start to, when, when a patient becomes really symptomatic because that tumor is filling the abdomen and compressing the internal organs and preventing them from doing their job effectively. In my case, I looked like I was several months pregnant and uh, my periods had stopped because my lady parts were so diseased with tumor and I my digestion was really wonky. I was getting really bloated and I had started getting acid reflux and started throwing up and my appetite just went out the window, which I love food. So that was very uh, not like me. So those are the symptoms to look out for. And it's important to raise awareness for this because you know, like in my case, I went to doctors, I knew something was wrong. And They are trained to look for the most common things and and start there. And that's what my doctor did. She said, okay, well, it's, you know, it's IBS. Try an IBS pill. Now, I think IBS is BS personally. It's like this catch-all for you have digestive issues. It's probably stress. So here you go. And I never took the pill. I managed my symptoms. I managed my pain with diet and exercise and and all of that. Um, And when it did flare up and I would go to urgent care or the ER, I was often turned away, dismissed, even ridiculed, honestly, because I would say, I think it's my appendix. And I had a male doctor like roll his eyes and get really frustrated and short with me and say that if, if it was my appendix, I would know I would be in so much pain. And oh gosh, who is someone else to, to, to say how much pain that I was in? I look back on that and I really wish that I would have stood up for myself more. But that's what this is about right now, an opportunity to raise awareness. And you've maybe heard me say it before. I'm probably going to keep saying it. If you feel like something's wrong, really feel like something's wrong, say say something. Get someone who who recognizes your pain and is willing to look at it with you rather than just dismissing you. So that's one reason why awareness is important. And if if you may not have any of these symptoms, but you may encounter someone in your life who does. And having heard my story, you'll be able to encourage them to 
look at other other things. You may have symptoms that are totally different, but are out there and doctors can't figure it out. And now you can feel empowered to um, move on and ask them if maybe there are things beyond the common causes that could be looked at for you. For instance, my, my doctor just didn't even know about appendix cancer. She didn't know to look for that. And doctors are trained to look for the most common thing. So it almost like narrows their focus and limits possibility. Uh, and that's another reason why I think it's important now that, that my doctors that I've had encounters with who maybe didn't know about it before, now that they know about it, if they see something odd like this again, there might be a little light that goes off and, and they feel like, oh, hey, maybe I should look into that. Maybe, you know, instead of looking at basic blood work, maybe we'll run the um, numbers and see what their CEA and CA125 and CA199 are. And now I'm going to talk about those. Those are three tumor markers. Uh, one is the CEA is for colon cancer. The CA199 is for pancreatic cancer. And the CA125 is for ovarian cancer. And when it comes to diagnosing PMP, obviously, as I just discussed, it's kind of difficult because the symptoms are mild. They look like other things. And so running this blood panel allows them to see where there may be malignancies. And for me, my CA125 was elevated slightly, as was my CEA. My CA199 was fine. And I, I, I don't think there was a lot of um, disease on my pancreas, thank goodness. But um, that was an indication to them that there was something going on. Obviously, because my CA125 was raised and because initially I had been, uh, they had been concerned about cysts on my ovaries and they had seen a mass on my ovary. Initially, they misdiagnosed me with ovarian cancer, which brings me to another reason why it's important to raise awareness because um, oftentimes it's misdiagnosed and a patient can go down the road of undergoing treatment for one type of cancer. The surgeons get in there and they go, oh boy, I don't know what this is. This looks different. And then that opens up a whole other can of worms. And before I go down that path, I want to go back to uh, the diagnosis. And there's uh, one other thing that they do to look for appendix cancer. Well, I guess two other things. For me, they they looked through ultrasound first, and that is how they found the fluid in my pelvis, which was, uh, I guess, probably the tumor. I'm not really sure. They called it ascites. And maybe that is something that's like a generic term for fluid of unknown origin. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. Just want to throw that out there only talking about this to raise awareness for something that I feel is really important. So please uh, fact check anything. Um, do not use, don't, don't take what I say as medical advice. Okay. There's my disclaimer. 
So there's ultrasound to diagnose. And then when they saw that, they needed to see more. And that's when they ordered a CT. And the CT confirmed that there was a mass on my ovary. And then the MRI was ordered later to see the extent of uh, the PMP, uh, the pseudomyxoma peritonei. And that was ordered by an appendix cancer specialist that I was referred to by an OBGYN, or actually I should say a gynecological oncologist who looked at my scans and said, okay, yes, this one that you just recently had looks like ovarian cancer, but this one that you had a year ago, I see nothing on your ovaries and I see something on your appendix. So she was able to say, Yes, yes, there's cancer on your ovaries, but it didn't start there. So I'm going to send you to a specialist. And that brings me to, uh, I don't know, what am I on? My third point for why it's important to raise awareness about rare diseases and, uh, and the challenges that people face is that it can be really hard to find a specialist who knows about your disease And it can be really hard to find a specialist who knows about your disease and your insurance is willing to pay for um, and is in your area even. Oftentimes, uh, specialists are few and far between. Like, had I been diagnosed with this in Ohio, first of all, I would have been surprised if it had, I would not be surprised if it would have taken even longer to be diagnosed. Um, and once I was, I wouldn't have had a specialist w- as close to me as I do now. It may have been hard to find. Um, there is a specialist at Pitts- in Pittsburgh, UPMC uh, Medical Center, whose name totally escapes me right now. But um I did consider going to him in case I wanted to be near my family. But fortunately for me in San Diego, there are two places that people can go for this. Uh, One at Sharp Memorial, uh, the doctor is Dr. Robert Barone, and another group of surgeons at UCSD Morse Cancer Center. And I believe there are three that I, I see people often go to for this. And the, they would be Dr. Baumgartner, Dr. Lowy, and then Dr. Virapong, who's pretty new to UCSD, I think. And he actually worked with my surgeon at Sharp and was one of the two surgical oncologists who were in on my uh, 13 and a half hour surgery. And I want to talk a minute for a minute about the treatment for appendix cancer and that would be uh, the most effective treatment. The standard of care is cytoreductive surgery and HIPEC together. And uh, oftentimes insurance will try to cite this as experimental, even though they've been doing it for like 35 years. And the reason that they do this is because, you know, I, I guess it's rare and so maybe it's not something that happens a lot. Some insurance companies have never even seen it, but there are resources out there who um, can help you fight insurance for getting it covered. Um, And I, I was, I didn't need that fortunately, but I was connected with someone through one of the PMP supports group 
support groups that I'm in. And that's what she does. She helps people get their surgeries covered. So that's a challenge that rare diseases face. Uh, finding an expert surgeon, getting it covered by insurance. And then uh, honestly, it's kind of lonely being a patient of a rare disease. Appendix cancer is a two in a million kind of thing. Initially, when I was diagnosed, I saw that was one in a million. But today for Rare Cancer Day, I see that um, the uh, appendix cancer and pseudomyxoma peritonei research foundation uh cited it as two in a million which is still pretty lonely honestly i don't know in person i've never met anyone else with this disease and i only know people who have been diagnosed with it thanks to the internet through support groups and through instagram i'm connected with others and uh at 36, I'm kind of on the young side for this rare cancer. It's often diagnosed in people uh, between like 50 and 55 and equally among men and women, which is interesting. Um, They also have no idea why this cancer happens. And I think that that is another um, sort of side effect of it being a rare cancer because in the case of breast cancer and colon cancer and other cancers, there's a lot of funding for research. And so they can put it towards not only treatment, but finding the cause of it so that they can have even further advanced treatments. And that just doesn't exist in the case of appendix cancer right now. So um, on that note, I will link to an organization that you can donate to if you choose to support uh, funding and support programs for appendix cancer research and supporting uh, patients and families going through it. So let's see. I think I covered everything um, from, you know, the symptoms, why it's important to be aware advocating for yourself, how appendix cancer is diagnosed, how it's treated, um, who gets it, why it's lonely, um, finding it, uh, getting insurance coverage, and then um, living with it. Living with it is, is, I guess, something I haven't talked about in depth on this episode. Maybe, I, I don't know. I haven't really talked about it on the podcast. The The fact that um, like now I go in for a scan in December, that'll be six months after my surgery and they'll do an MRI. I'm, I feel fortunate that my doctor does MRIs and not CTs. Some do do CTs. Uh, and that's a lot of radiation to be exposed to with the MRI. There is the issue of contrast. It's like a metal that they use and it can cause metal toxicity in the body. I am going to be working with a naturopath to help my body detox from that after the scan. But uh, the purpose of the scan is to see if there's any cancer 
back in there. And the goal is to hear no evidence of disease and then six months later, hear it again. So every six months for five years, there's a scan in blood work, uh, hopefully no evidence of disease. And once the five-year no evidence of disease mark is reached, the scanning goes to a yearly scan in blood work for another, I believe, 10 years. And then uh, every two years for the rest of a survivor's life. And also once diagnosed with any type of cancer, uh, the chances of being diagnosed with another cancer are increased because cancer is partially about cells not being able to replicate correctly and the body being able to detox effectively. And our body is constantly in need of detoxification and cell replication. So uh, a survivor also uh, needs to be up on other checks. So I'll be having a mammogram real soon. That's going to be fun. And also uh, I need to make an appointment with my dermatologist because I am freckled and I want to make sure that uh, skin cancer isn't added to my list of things I survive from. So that's that's what I know about appendix cancer. And I thank you for listening to, to that. I hope that it helps you uh, or someone you know just, you know, to be a little bit more healthy. Awareness never, never hurts in any situation, I don't think. So October 1st, Rare Cancer Day. I will be celebrating this uh, raising awareness every year for as long as I shall live. And it's a really nice way, I think, to uh, kick off October. October is my favorite month. It's fall. I grew up in Ohio and I just love autumn. I love the crisp air. I love the change of the seasons and the fall of the leaves and the food that comes with fall, the warm flavors. Um, It's just really nice and cozy and comforting. Even here in Southern California, we're feeling it. Um, And another thing that uh, October brings, and this is kind of a newish one to me too, is Sober October, which originated as actually a fundraiser, and maybe they still do it. I don't know. I just kind of did a quick Google search on this because I was curious about where it came from. It originated from a fundraiser for Macmillan Cancer Center in the UK, and they were encouraging people to go sober for October. And now it seems to be this thing that people do because they want to challenge themselves. Maybe they feel they drink too much and they just want to break. I don't know. But I've decided that I'm going to be going sober for October and beyond. It's not something that's come about because of this sober for October thing, but it seemed kind of convenient, I guess, since Sober October is a thing to commit to it now. Sobriety is something that I had been considering for the last year, 
my relationship to alcohol and our general societal relationship to alcohol is something that I've been really examining and thinking a lot about over the last probably five years. Um, So it felt like time to commit. I also have trouble committing and I wanted to make it known and share it because I think that you know, obviously I think sharing stories are important and I think that it's an important part of my truth, my personal truth. I'm not going to talk a whole lot about that now. Uh, The rest of this episode is just going to be kind of like bits and pieces about things, little announcements. Um, And so I'm just going to announce that I'm going to do a more in-depth podcast on that. Um, talking about my lifelong relationship to alcohol, how it's changed over the years, alcoholism and addiction, which run in my family. Uh, And I say kind of like run in my family in air quotes, because I think that's an interesting term to use. Uh, I don't necessarily believe that alcoholism is genetic, like I was taught that it was when I was younger. And then I'm also going to talk about something that I just recently discovered through a friend who's been sober for a few years, and that is this sober curious movement that's out there and Quitlet. There's a hashtag on Instagram you can follow, Quitlet, and it's all about literature that is promoting sobriety and quitting drinking. And I I want to make one other note about that. I'm not quitting drinking because I feel like I could be like I was like an alcoholic who, you know, I'm going to go to AA meetings and stuff. I'm quitting drinking because it just wasn't serving me anymore. It's like uh, it's like that friend that you have a real good time with, but then it always ends in drama and you feel angry and upset and there's always conflict. And you're like, why do I hang out with her? Yeah, alcohol's like that for me. So um, moving on, another podcast that I'm going to have coming up is about body image and body love and acceptance and what that looks like for me post-cancer. Yeah, a lot of these podcasts that I'm doing recently involve my cancer because, or I want to say my cancer experience. I'm I'm trying to be more intentional and careful with that language. Um, But they involve my cancer experience because that's an experience I had and something to be talked about and it is uh, relevant. So uh, I hope that that's okay with you listening. And if it's not, don't listen. Um, But in that episode, I'm going to talk about my lifelong struggle with body hatred and Uh, desire for that kind of body confidence and how something so deeply altering to my body has brought about so much more acceptance and what catalyzed the my feel my my call to uh, recording this podcast on this subject is Uh, was initially other people's opinions about my body post-surgery and how those landed with me. So that should be a really interesting episode. Two really good ones coming up, uh, one about sobriety, one about uh, body, body image. 
And then back to October, we so there's October 1st, we're at Cancer Day, going sober for October. And I'm also going home to Ohio for the first time in two years. I haven't seen my grandma and a lot of my family in that long. I haven't seen my sister uh, the two years ago that I was back. That was for her wedding. And in those two years, she had a baby. So I'll get to meet my niece for the first time. And she's just a little over one years old. That'll be fun. I like little kids when they're at that age. When they're too tiny, they scare me a little. Like I might drop them or something. So it's going to be a, a nice trip. And I'll get a little taste of that fall weather that I love. And and see my dad and any friends if you're listening and uh, you're going to be around Ohio at that time, I'd love to meet up. Um, And then also after Ohio, I'm going back to work, which is exciting and scary all at the same time. I'm going back a little bit earlier than planned, hopefully, as long as I can get my doctor to write that note. He's like almost 80 years old and working through his office is slow. They don't really do technology. Um, So back to work a little earlier, and that is because I need to qualify for insurance. Uh, Insurance at Trader Joe's is based on how many hours you work in a six-month period. So um, from July to, uh, no, June, I don't know, the six months prior to November 30th is a qualifying period. And obviously that's when the majority of my surgery was, but they averaged my hours from before, which was from a period when I qualified, but I was working full-time hours. So basically what I'm saying is I've got to go back and work full-time hours up until November 30th, which um, having not been that physically active, not had that much social interaction going from being really, really anxious, being in public spaces right after the surgery um, to being much more comfortable. Now, I still don't really know how that's going to feel to be eight hours in a customer facing uh, position. So it's going to be it's going to be interesting, exciting, interesting. I'm excited to get back and be with my coworkers who are amazing. Trader Joe's is really just an amazing family to be a part of. And I'm really, really lucky and super fortunate. That insurance, amazing. It paid for uh, my my surgery bill from the, uh, from the surgery in the hospital stay was $660,000. $660,000. That is why it is important that awareness is raised and if someone is diagnosed with this, that they know that they can fight their insurance company to get the care that they need covered because it it would break a person financially to have to pay for that themselves, most likely. Um, Most people can't afford that kind of -of out-of-pocket expense. And fortunately for me, the out-of-pocket expense was a $500 hospital stay copay. Amazing. That's why it's really important that I get back to work and I keep my insurance. And then the other thing that's coming up in October, October 29th, is my birthday. And this one is, I mean, 
Birthdays are always special. Not that I've often made a huge deal out of them, but this year I feel very differently because I'm so grateful to be having a birthday. It is such a blessing to be turning 37 and I am looking forward to so many more birthdays. Um, so many more celebrations. And for my birthday, the last several years, I've went to a camping music festival. And I'm really looking forward to being there with my music family for that and celebrating being in nature, dancing, moving this body that I'm so grateful for and that I love so much more genuinely than I think I ever have before. So that is what's happening in October. And there is one last thing that I want to announce. This is like the the big thing at the end of the podcast and the thing that I actually have had anxiety about uh, doing. Um, but After the last podcast that I recorded, where I talked about how not to die with your music still inside, I realized how much I needed to sit with those things and take some of that advice a little bit further. So the fifth thing that I talked about uh, in not how to not die with your music inside of you was not trying to do it alone and realizing that It's okay to ask for help and guidance in achieving the things that we want to do in this lifetime. You know, I I think I referenced maybe that's hiring a coach or seeking guidance from someone who's been there before or asking for the support of friends. You know, whatever it is, there's like this misguided belief in life that we have to do it all alone or that asking for help is shameful or weak and it's not true. And then adding to that, there was an opportunity to reflect on, on some things within my music community. And I posted about that uh, on my Facebook page. There's a video and I believe it's public to anyone. So you can go and check it out. But the issue of self-reliance came up and how we are responsible for our own happiness and setting our own boundaries, voicing our own desires, really knowing what we want and need and honoring that for ourselves and not expecting to make other people uh, responsible for it. But self-reliance is not exclusive to interdependence. So we can be self-reliant and still ask things of other people. In fact, that is part of being, I think, effectively self-reliant is to know that maybe there's something that you can't do on your own and that we do need help with. That's like what I said at the end of the last podcast. Um, And interdependence is a beautiful thing and something that I think is somewhat lost in our current um, societal model where like we live in single family homes and we don't have centered community. But 
you think about life, we're all diff- we're all different and we're all good at different things. And so instead of one person trying to do everything by themselves all the time, sometimes like it's a lot more effective and efficient and um, less stressful to go and ask someone who is good at something to do that something. And then we're freed up to do the other things that we're good at. And then similarly, there are times when someone is going to be really strong and healthy and able and abundant to do on their own. And then there are going to be times when they're, they're not. And in those times when they're strong and abundant and able, they're able to help others who aren't. And then when they're not, strong and abundant and able others who are are able to help them so there's this like beautiful exchange that can happen when we allow for interdependence and part of self-reliance is knowing when to reach out so I am in a place where I need to reach out I have been thinking a lot about not wanting to die with my music still inside. Obviously, there's a lot of things that I want to do in this lifetime, a lot of things I want to share, so much more that I want to get into on the podcast. I want to write. I've got a few books that I want to write. I want to share what I know and and really make the world a better place. But to do that, I need to be healthy and I need to be well. And it starts within. And to take care of myself and put myself in that position, I do not have uh, the financial resources required to do that most effectively right now. I am going back to work, yes, but in looking at finances, my what my my monthly living expenses to do all the things that I need to do to stay healthy and well and give myself the best chance of being no evidence of disease for the rest of my life, uh, they're high. <laughs> and I, I am looking at ways that I can uh, generate that abundance for myself. But right now, I need to ask for the help from my community. So I will be putting a GoFundMe out there uh, I wrote it up last night and it's ready to go. I'm going to be putting that out there probably right alongside this podcast, right on Rare Cancer Awareness Day, which all of this just happens to to be coincidental, um, but it feels right. It feels like the momentum is there. And I trust that in in asking that um, the support will, will be there. A lot of people asked when I was diagnosed and when I was in the hospital, what they could do. A lot of friends asked, family asked, and I just, I didn't know. I mean, people, I should say there were strangers that asked too. And I just didn't know because I didn't know what I was facing. I didn't know what a surgery like this would feel like. I didn't know what the healing would be like. I didn't do a ton of research because I didn't want to have um, expectations about it either way. So uh, my research was minimal. In fact, I think Graham did more than I did. And um, 
I just went through it and it was like, it wasn't even day by day. It was like hour by hour, like survival. You know, what do I, what do I need right now? Oh my gosh, I, I, I need the bathroom and then I feel fine and I need to sleep. And the opiate withdrawals were like the worst part of not knowing what I needed. Um, and then the digestion sorting out. So I had friends offer to make food or order food and I didn't know what I was going to be able to eat. Now, however, a lot of that has sorted itself out and I know what I can eat. I know what I need to eat. I know what is going to fuel my body best and I want to be able to provide that. I know what kind of treatments I'm going to need physically, um, emotionally, supplements, uh, things to keep my nervous system and my body strong. You know, my my whole entire organ system is impacted by this surgery. Uh, so there are organs there that aren't, they're not there to do their job anymore. So other organs need to be supported. Um, and reducing stress is really important. So uh, making sure I have a consistent mindfulness practice, meditation and yoga and um, breath work is something that I probably should have been pursuing already because I was on life support for four days and part of my diaphragm was cut out. And the diaphragm is really important because it's how we breathe. And when we breathe and breathe deeply, it pushes down on our uh, digestive organs, gives them a little massage, and it pushes things through. It also uh, is related to the vagus nerve, which is related to the nervous system. Oh, excuse me, a little hiccup. Um, It's related to the nervous system. So it, it soothes that and my vagus nerve was damaged. There was trauma. So breath work is a big thing that I haven't been doing. Um, and that's going to be an additional cost. So anyway, in the GoFundMe that I'm going to put out there, the costs are listed and you'll see. And uh, if you feel called to donate, I would really greatly appreciate it. If you would prefer not to donate through GoFundMe, but there are other things that you feel you could offer in way of support um, by services or money even, and you'd just prefer a different route, you can Venmo me or send a check or, you know, whatever. I don't, I am open to uh, the support that you're willing to offer. I have looked within and looked at what I have and the resources available immediately to me and seen what I can do and where I need help. And this is me vocalizing my needs. Um, my family has been an incredible help throughout the surgery. And the reason that I've been able to pay my rent and my car insurance and all of that without a job, because yeah, I, I did get approved for short-term disability, but it's that's that's a, just a little bit of money compared even to what I would be making and um, again a lot of increased costs associated with healing so that's the the big uh, announcement at the end so much going on in October and I am really excited to uh, be living life so fully and it's with 
your generous help that I will be able to do that, that I will be able to go back to work full time and uh, manage my manage my stress levels and my physical strength um, and also continue to reflect on this experience and speak about it and just reflect on life in general and um, do the things that I love and share with you uh, these things because I really, really, I do. I have fun doing this podcast. It's exciting and I love the connections that have come through it. It's been really cool and I I crave more of that. I crave connection with my fellow human, humankind. I think that is something that has lacked a lot in my life and I've had enough of that lack of connection and I want to know what it's like in life to experience a whole lot more of it. So thank you for connecting with me here. I thought this would be a quick 20 minute podcast and uh, a coach recently told me uh, or actually I saw her tell someone else to like double the time that you think something is going to take you. And I guess I should do that with these podcasts too. Just double the time. I think I'm going to talk. <laughs> well, thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. Thank you for being courageous enough to really like live this awesome human life. And until next time, lots of love. <laughs>